Hello and welcome. This is Roger Royce with the 10,000 Startups Podcast, where every week we bring you original content on legal issues of interest to startup companies with an industry expert. This week, we're going to take uh, a little bit of a diversion from pure legal and talk more about valuation, since it's so important to startup companies, uh, in all companies, really, in a lot of different contexts. And that's why we're going to talk a little bit about valuation, 409A, buy, sell, all that stuff, M&A. And our guest this week is Jeff Faust. He's a principal of valuation services at Abbott Stringman Lynch in San Jose. He's at or near San Jose. I guess you're in Cupertino or Campbell or someplace like that. He has over 25 years of experience in evaluation of privately held companies stock options, ESOPs, estate gift, fundraising, M&A, and more. Uh, So he certainly has done a lot of this uh, stuff. He's also, this is interesting, I didn't know this till just now, he's a musician and plays the bass. He does fly fishing, hiking, and the outdoors. So Jeff, first of all, I want to thank you for being here, and uh, thanks for taking the time to tell us about valuation. So I, I know you sent me some some interview questions. Thank you for that. But but let's take a bigger step back and and let me ask you the first question: Why does someone need to value a company? Well, there's lots of different purposes someone would need to value a company. For starters, a lot of companies in the valley need to share equity with their team members. So that's first and foremost, and that tends to happen fairly early in a company. You know, with founders are forming, trying to share grant, you know, stock options to their early team member, and obviously one of the most important ones is when you talk to an investor. You know, how do you value your company and position it for discussions with investors? So that's another another big one. Okay, good good reasons. Okay, so let's suppose um, I have a company and and uh, I come to you and I say. Uh, let's value Jeff. How are you going to do that? Especially one of my little startup companies that doesn't, I mean, we, we're not publicly traded. You know, there's not a, people out there doing a bunch of secondaries on our stock, et cetera. Uh, I mean, how are you going to go about valuing that company? So we we come at the company from as many different angles as we can. I often talk about data points. You know, if I can get as many data points as possible, you know, that's going to help us in that process. But the two major areas that we focus on is their own income and their cash flow capabilities. You know, how quick are they going to get to cash flow positive? What's their revenue trend going to look like? And then we want to understand what's going on in the market. Who do they consider their peer group or comps? You know, are there large companies that they compete against? You know, and what is their market multiple? I mean, are they in a 2x business, a 5x business, a 10x revenue business? Um, we need to kind of know that. So it's it's the two focus on the market itself and what's going on there and the cash flow and the growth expectations of the company itself. Okay, gotcha. Now, um, l- let me just let me just back up a little bit. For for startups, let's suppose we're super early, right? And I think it's always a problem because companies come to me and like, look, we just formed last week. Uh, we don't have any IP yet. We don't have any customers. We got this really great idea. I mean, just how far along does a company have to be before you can actually do a meaningful valuation? Well, you can de- you can do evaluation at any stage in a company's life cycle. You know, the, the challenge you have is the early you get, the more you're 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 hypothesizing. I mean, you don't have enough traction yet, or or. Um, uh, progress financially or even in the market to have a lot of that stuff figured out. So you can do it early, but the problem is your risk profile will be really, really large early on. So a lot of the assumptions you're making are going to be coupled with a significant amount of risk 
which brings the value way down. So there's not a lot of value in a really early stage company. There might be a lot of potential. And that's the challenging part is what is the purpose of the valuation? You know, if you're trying to talk to investors, that's a different conversation than trying to grant to team members. And so you have to sort of understand the purpose and that's going to drive the different methodology. But it is difficult to, to, to value an early stage startup. Um, like I said, you, you have to make a lot of assumptions and it's going to be wrapped in a lot of risk. Um, there are some studies that have been done to quantify risk. And that's one of the things that we try to point startups to is making sure they know and to quantify the risk associated with their stage. So if they are really early stage, a concept mode company, they're going to have discount rates in any of their calculations that are really, really high. I mean, we're talking 100% discount rates in a present value calculation, which is pretty huge. You may not be running at present value calculations. You probably might do a little bit more benchmarking. And that's another thing that happens early on when you're very early. You're doing a lot more benchmarking, meaning you're kind of stacking yourself up against others who might have been out there. So if you know two or three other companies who are sort of like yours that have raised money, you know, what is their average pre-money? And so trying to benchmark yourself against those and, you know, are we a little better or maybe not as good as these other companies? And here's their valuation. You know, those are great methodology. I mean, leverage the data that's out there. I mentioned that before about data points, but try to get as much data points, not only in your company, but maybe potentially competitors and other companies like yours out there. Yeah, suppose I want to game the system and I want to engineer this a little bit and I want to like push that value up. What can I do about that? I mean, can I run out well, and file I mean, patents? Can I? You, you bring up a really, really great point. And, 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 you, and when you ask a valuation guy, we will always say it's an art and science. But you ask an investor, they're going to say it's neither one of those is a negotiation. So you bring up a really good point in that you have to understand that it's a negotiation. And any art of negotiation says, I don't throw out the number that I want. I got to throw out a number that's a little higher. And we kind of negotiate there. <laughs> so, yes, you have to understand that it's going to be negotiating. It's helpful then. That's why I mentioned benchmarking. What are companies out there getting? And so you kind of want to know your starting point. I often say, yes, it's a negotiation. But also the art of negotiation says if you're too far apart, you're never going to get on the same page. So if you start out and you're throwing out a number that's really way too high, you might not be able to get on that same page. So we try to help companies put a little bit of science to make sure they start out with the first number they throw out. Yes, you're going to lean a little high because you know there's negotiations, but you don't want to throw out a number that's ridiculous. I mean, if you think you're on 5 million, you can't throw out 15 million. That is just way too high. So maybe you throw out something like seven or eight, then you can kind of negotiate down to a five. So yes, I think that's important to note that there's going to be a negotiation, but you, you got to be reasonable. Yeah, I got you. Um, well, let me kind of kind of cut to the, the thing that most people are probably thinking about. Most startups say they don't, it's like you say, they negotiate value. They, they don't hire a professional to tell them value, except in one case where they absolutely have to, right? And that's stock option pricing. Yep, yep. So so tell me a, a little bit about that, because oftentimes people say, geez, why do I have to get a valuation for this? Yeah, 409A is the one code section. It's an IRS code section, and it, there's a lot of misconception around it because it's a 409 big A, which means it's squished between 409 and 410. So it's not a 409 little A, which just makes it confusing. When everybody looks it up, it's hard to kind of find information about it and read the actual code section. But it is an IRS code section that says you have to grant stock options at fair market value. And when this was proposed regs many, many years ago, 
people started scratching their heads saying, okay, well, great. How do I know it's at fair market value? Well, one of the one of the one of the um, the, the, the criteria would be get an independent valuation. So when you do hire an independent appraiser, you do satisfy the requirements under 409A. And if you don't, your options are going to be deemed exposed to 409A. And that is a bad thing when it comes to um, getting investment dollars. And even more important, if you're getting interest from someone that's that might be acquiring you, large companies will not acquire a 409A exposure. She, we've actually seen you know, transactions blow up over an early stage 409A grants, you know, early grants in a company that didn't get a formal valuation when they do it. Oh, it's yeah, early. me too. I've had that happen where yeah. acquiring company comes along and says all those option grants, yep. you know, go cancel them. You know, yep. if you cancel or go this- fix it. And that go fix it is about a two month, you know, twenty thirty thousand dollars endeavor. And sometimes the acquirer isn't going to wait around. So you're right. Then then the quicker one is just cancel them all. And yeah, you don't want to see that for the team members either. Yeah, so you got to get the valuation, and then secondly, it's got to be a real valuation. It's got to be ones that the auditors are going to accept, right? Yep, that's that's another thing too. Is there are a lot of free providers out there, but there is an AICPA practice aid that you have to follow if you're doing 409As, and any auditors in the IRS will grab that practice aid as the Bible. So if you're not following that to the letter it's going to get thrown out. So quality matters. I mean, yeah, you want to shop on price, but quality matters. You just can't go grab a free provider and say, yep, that's going to satisfy 409A. And if they're not following the rules, that could get thrown out. So just getting an independent valuation is not going to, it's not going to satisfy the requirements. It actually has to be done in accordance with the rules around 409A. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, providers and how the industry is changing, like I can't have a conversation anymore without artificial intelligence coming up. Yeah. Uh, is that affecting your industry? Do you think it a will? little bit? You know, a little bit. I, I actually see it as a positive. You know, to me, I think AI allows people to get more data points. I mean, I've said it several times during this. It's going to allow you to search the internet for more data points. It's going to allow you to to use it to interpret data. So I think it's it's great. However. You have to be careful with it because there are some sources that are behind. I mean, some of the data that's out there is about a year behind, so it's not up to speed as far as current rules and laws. So if you're using it to augment your knowledge, it's fantastic. If you're using it to lead your arguments and your your services, I don't think it's a great thing. I think we as a service provider industry and the accounting industry and valuation industry see it as a way to, to have our lower level staff leverage it to take them further you know, it's harder and harder to find entry level staff. So, you know, getting a, a, a few to leverage themselves and be able to do more um, with AI, I think is great. So we actually see it as a great tool because I think it's going to make our, our early people better and it's going to give us more access to data points. So I actually am welcoming AI. Um, the challenge I see in our industry is we're sort of, we tend to sit back and wait and let the larger companies try to figure it out and and I'm and I'm trying to figure out a way for us to get involved earlier than later and try to work with some AI companies on it there's you know companies like Charlie AI and a couple others that are that are great resources for that that you can get involved in pretty early and kind of help in the development of these tools which is kind of neat Gotcha. There's open AI. There's all kinds of open AI sources too that are great to, to, to look at. I, I like the way you describe it. It's a tool, right? Yes. It's not a yeah. substitute for a real person. Yeah. I mean yeah. you know technology just isn't quite there yet where it can replace us all. So yeah. it's I mean, everybody freaked out when the computers came out. Everybody's losing their jobs. But now every worker uses that as a tool in their own day-to-day job functions. So it's going to be like that. It's just going to be another software tool as part of your daily stack, for sure. Yeah, for computers sure. 
So in addition to stock option pricing, which everybody uses professional valuations for, in my practice, it comes up in a couple of other places. Uh, probably the next biggest one, which would be for purposes of valuing uh, like a buy-sell agreement or a gift. Yep. And uh, once in a while, so for a buy-sell, so let me just kind of, let's stop on that for a mm -hmm. minute because I know you've done those. So you've got two shareholders and one wants to sell the other. It's a private company. How do you know what it's worth? So they just agree that they're going to get a professional valuation. Uh, is now, is that a, now do you go through a different process when you do that than when you do a 409A? Yes. And, and a lot of it goes back to the agreement itself. So you got to go back to the buy-sell agreement to, to see what it states and the, the rules around that. Some buy-sell agreements call out the term fair value versus fair market value. And that can mean the difference of having discounts for lack of control or not. Um, also, Talk about that for a minute. What's a discount or control discount? Yeah, so a lot of times when you have a, an interest that's below 50%, you see discounts for lack of control and lack of marketability. Sometimes when you see fair value rules, you don't see discounts for lack of control. And the theory is someone who's a minority interest, they get their same fair value of someone who sells the whole company. So I get my fair value of the whole thing. So that tends to exclude discounts for lack of control when you're talking fair value versus fair market value, you tend to see it. Now, even in the valuation industry, there can be some disagreements around the term fair market value and even fair value if, if they include those discounts or not. There's been some debates. So we do see people now carrying those languages more forward in buy-sell agreement to not just say, got to get evaluation, it's fair market value, but adding things like that does also mean that may or may not include discounts for lack of marketability or lack of control. So we're seeing a little bit further language around that to clarify it. Yeah, uh, I've done that. You used too. to see get a valuation, but now you're starting to see it defining the term and going down and defining even some discounts that you may or may not want to use. Yeah, and and I've and I've done it that way as well, where we yeah. say well, the valuation that we're not we're going to not discount for lack of marketability. Yeah. We're not going to discount for minority. We're going to value the whole thing and multiply your percentage. Yeah, and then but other times that works for 50-50 owners. You know, because right. when you think about 150, who's going to get that other person's 50 and become that 100%, I would imagine both people, when they're looking at each other, would go, I think that's fair to each one of us. I mean, if the other person's going to get 100, that person should get a control value. It would seem kind of weird to discount that person's 50% for lack of marketability, lack of control. So, yes, you see a lot of those 50 50 situations where that person's going to get a control. Because that that survivor is going to get to be that hundred percent. So why not have that other person get that same sort of value as well? So we do see that a lot when 50-50 interests uh, come up between two two shareholders. Right. And then in other cases, uh, I'll be silent on it and just yeah. let the valuation professionals duke it out. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes, sometimes each of the professionals say, you know, we want the survivability of the company to be the most important. And yes, while I want my estate to get some value, I want you to be able to take the company and run with it the most. And so having a discounted value makes the most sense for each of us because if something happens to one of us, now it's only one of us instead of two of us. And maybe one's the engineer, one's the ops guy, and they have very different specialty where the company is going to be potentially damaged because of the death or the departure of one of those people. And so maybe having that still a discounted value makes sense. Mostly the founders are going to know that together and they're going to be able to communicate that to you as the attorney to, to kind of 
to, to kind of memorialize their wishes. You know, if they want a discount, they're going to want to put that in the buy sell. Gotcha. Some don't, you know, some they don't know that those exist. And so we see some um, uh, some challenging worded buy sell agreements. And in that situation, we just have to kind of follow the, the um, as best we can, the language in the buy sell. Yeah. And, and, and I guess for the audience, the way I've typically done this and have seen this is we say, look, we're going to get a valuation professional, but each you, each of you shareholders, you get your own professional. And if they're off, if they disagree, you will average your results. If they're close enough, if they're not, we're going to have them get together and pick a third professional. I will tell you that once you get into controversy with this, um, it's uh, that language, you know, you can only get people to be cooperative to a certain extent. Yes. So I try to make it simpler rather than more complex. So yeah. let me bring you to the next one that we would call a guy like you, and that would be estate and gift tax valuation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is kind of interesting because estate and gift, right? You want to have the lowest value possible if you're valuing it for estate and gift, right? So again, that might be a little different objective and a little different um, valuation than you would have in a buy-sell scenario, which I think should probably be a little more tailored to the specific goals of the parties. Exactly, exactly. And there are situations where, you know, LLCs come into play with a lot of state and gifts. We see a lot of gifts being in LLCs, which are a little different than in a corporation. And sometimes LLC, the operating agreements contain a lot of restrictions. And that tends to be why you see lower values in a state and gift because LLC agreements create added restrictions. It's not theoretically that, oh, we're going to pay tax. Let's let's push it down. It's really is because of the discounts and some of the restrictions that come in the LLCs that you have to quantify that don't exist in some of these other ones. 409A also is companies will use the 409A results in their option expensing and those require fair value rules versus fair market value rules that are exist under 409A. So you see 409A providers not doing some discounts because of the fact that people want to use it for dual purposes. But estate and gift is very, very bright line. It is fair market value. And fair market value states that you can use these discounts. And so that's why you will always see discounts for lack of control in an estate and gift. And often you won't in a 409A. So Again, it's not that you're leaning low in estate and gift because you don't want to pay tax. It's because you have some added restrictions potentially, and you have these discounts, these added discounts for lack of control. And sometimes you can push them up because of the added restrictions. That tends to be why you get lower values. Ah, fascinating. I mean, okay. there, are, there are times you can lean, but generally that is not the reason. You got to be careful there because the IRS can get really aggressive. You know, they have professional valuation folks on their staff, they're going to know if you're leaning and they're going to obviously have an issue with that if they know it's going to be a taxable estate. Yeah, that actually explains a lot. That that explains why you can get different answers depending who you ask. And then finally, every once in a while, uh, somebody will come to me and say, we want a professional valuation for M&A purposes. Uh, We're doing a merger and we'd like to know the relative values of our companies. We want to know the value of the target we're acquiring or we want to know what our value is so we can put that out there when we go out into the market. Do you see that very often? All the time. And it's getting to be one of the one of the biggest projects that we work on. It's that what is the ballpark? You know, what am I worth just so I have a rough idea as people start reaching out to me because people are getting pinged a lot now on purchasing their businesses and they are different. A lot of it is more focused rather than on comps, you know, who are some of my comps and comparables? You're looking more at strategic transactions. 
is private equity in this space? Are they paying premiums for companies like this? Are we seeing large companies doing any roll-up strategies? And we have access to databases that look at much larger transactions. And you start seeing private equity roll-ups or large company roll-ups. And you start seeing values that tend to be on the higher side. I mean, typically, when you get a large company coming in like a Google and they're buying up a bunch of companies, they tend to pay premiums. And a lot of reasons they're doing that because they want to call the shots. They don't want to have you know terms that are favorable to someone else. They want to call the shots. So if I overpay, I can call the shots. I can create the timeline. And so you start seeing those synergistic deals. And so kind of knowing that's out there is really, really important. Yeah, that that's absolutely. That's always part of the trade-off. Yep. You know, it's uh, if it's a higher value, then you're gonna they're gonna make it up on other terms. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you, know, you don't, you know, and that's the problem with finding transactions. You sometimes spend a lot of effort and you don't see any, but you can also get a synergistic value in an income approach. You know, if you're if the company has got a 409A or potentially an estate and gift valuation, and you see what their projections look like, generally what people say is okay, if I'm acquired. I'm going to grow more rapidly because I have access to different resources and access to maybe an additional sales team. So if you start dialing up your projections without adding a risk profile on top of it, normally in a, in a normal valuation, when you dial up projections, you're going to add some risk element on top of it. You know, there's more risk associated with achieving more projections. But in an M&A valuation, you wouldn't do that. You'd sort of dial up projections to see what happens without added risk because that extra player that's coming in is going to hedge that risk. And so you can start seeing your values hedging upward even without access to those strategic deals. But that's going to require kind of dialing a little bit on your projections. And you can pretty much dial any number. So you got to be careful making sure it's reasonable. And there's where a professional can come in and kind of give you advice on here's where you know, kind of the top end of the dial. Once you start getting to that point, then it starts getting a little bit unrealistic. Yeah, you know, valuation has always seemed to be somewhat of a black art to me because I don't quite understand it. But what I've noticed is that different investors, acquirers, et cetera, they all tend to come out at about the same place. And it's like, that is the wildest coincidence. You know, yeah, so you know it, it is interesting. Well, I, I, I keep mentioning data points. I always am amazed at that. And the owners will have a really good sense of value, but they're not looking at it at all the same as we are. But you can get there with multiple different data points. I mean, investors have their own mechanics. I mean, some of them look at, you know, customer acquisition cost and, you know, all, you know some of the metrics on traffic and things like that. And they can get pretty accurate. You know, a lot of those traffic metrics can translate to cash flow and revenue that we as professional appraisers look at. And you can kind of get to a similar level at looking at a couple of different data points. So you're, you're right. I'm always amazed at how people can converge, but be looking at very, very different methods. I, I often encourage that too. I mean, one of the things you'll hear is I, I like having a startup running multiple different methods and talking to multiple different providers, because if you're getting your investor and your advisors and a professional valuation person coming at a very similar range of value, you know, you have your answer. I mean, it's going to be really hard to pierce that answer when you're getting that number from a couple different sources, especially from investors and consultants and professional valuation folks, that's pretty much your number. You know, and then you might lean a little high to leave room for negotiation, but I think it's a great thing if you're getting a similar number from multiple providers because that you, that gives you a lot more confidence. You know, when we look at data points and we're getting convergence, you know, we love that, but that's not always the case. And sometimes you have to work through, well, why is this one method spinning sideways a little bit? That's what are the different methods? I mean, is it is it I, I know there's a discounted cash flow concept. There's 
probably a comparable company concept. I mean, when you say converge, what are some of the what are the top three methods you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, so we we kind of we group them into market approaches, income approaches, and asset based methods. So your income approaches include what you just mentioned, kind of the disc, discounted cash flow method, and and you can also have methods that are backwards looking, like the single period capitalization method. So you can have them backwards looking, you can do them forward looking, you know, and and your your cash flow method you sometimes see variations on the theme, discounted cash flow to equity, discounted cash flow to the firm. It really depends on kind of where you're at on the P&L. Am I looking at EBITDA? Am I looking at EBIT? Am I looking at net income? You know, where are you at in the P&L will kind of drive what your ending methodology is. We mostly look at EBITDA because that kind of drives everything. It's kind of before a company's debt decision to pay things like debt and interest and depreciation, which can be kind of non-cash deductions. That's what we consider more of cash flow, you know, what a company's really doing. So we look at EBITDA and that tends to produce what we call a DCF to, to the firm, this kind of cash flow to the firm. But then you have market approaches where there's a couple different data sources. You know, there are public companies where you can have a, a, a guideline public company method where you're comparing your company to public companies. You can have a small transaction method. There's a company called Deal Stats. They produce data sets and they're much smaller transactions. So we call that a comparable transaction method. And then you have that kind of that roll-ups, the private equity companies. These are merged and acquired deals that we get from a capital IQ source. That's S&P's data source. And that's another set. And we call that guideline merged and acquired. Anytime you hear the word guideline, that tends to refer to public companies are really large players. And so you can have a couple different uh, transaction data sources those kind of fall under market approaches. And then you have the asset-based approaches, which are things like restated net worth or your net worth, or like a cost approach. Sometimes an early stage company, they really don't know when they're going to generate revenue yet. They're still pretty far away from figuring things out. Cost approaches work great. You know, how much have you burned to date? You know, when companies are really too early to really do a formal valuation, one of the cool things about 409A, it actually lets you do it yourself, but you have to follow a traditional method. And a cost approach is a great one because that is a, a generally accepted valuation method. So how much have you spent to date? You know, and that's yeah. kind of deemed an asset, asset-based method. So we kind of group them by major categories because there are, you know, half a dozen or so methods under each one of those. So that income market and asset-based approaches are more of the kind of three most common groupings of methods. Okay, good. All right. Well, with that, I think we're, I know I can tell you could talk all day about, about sure this and get very deep in the weeds. Uh, so, so Jeff, how does somebody find you if they need to value their company? So of course, uh, you can see our website here or here, I guess, uh, businessvals.com. That gets to Abbott Stream and Lynch's valuation section of our website. You can also go to ASL's website, which is aslcpa.com. Um, you can find me there. Okay, great. I want to thank you for being here and speaking with us today about this important topic, valuation. This is Roger Royce. This is the 10,000 Startups Podcast, where each week we bring you content on issues of interest to startup companies. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.